I want to start today's talk by reading to you a letter that a college student wrote to a pastor in the Bay Area some years ago. It said this, my parents divorced when I was two years old. They are religious polar opposites. My father, being an adamant Muslim and a native of Iran, cannot fathom the idea of God having a son. My mother, a devout Christian, earnestly worships that son every day. Today, I consider my Christian faith to be the most important thing in my life, but what if I'd been raised in my father's birthplace, Iran? What if all my friends were Muslim? What if praying five times a day facing Mecca were commonplace? Would I still be at a Christian college? What if I'd been raised in India? What if voluntary starvation were the highest human achievement in my religious milieu, as in Jainism? What if I'd been raised by my Buddhist stepfather? What if I were raised around sunyasi, devout Hindus who seek inactivity in order to avoid rebirth and to unify the divine essence? If my reasons for believing in Christianity are circumstantial, how can I say that Jesus Christ is the right and only way to the divine? How can I expect my father to convert to my beliefs if I have not honestly and openly considered converting to Islam? Can you help me understand my situation? Now, that letter raises the issue that we began to wrestle with briefly last week as we looked at Acts chapter 4 and we saw the apostles' response to the first opposition that their brand new movement faced. Last week, we read that very famous verse, Acts 4.12, where Peter said, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which, which we must be saved. And I told you that we would come back to that verse this week and we would consider its claim in more depth. You know, in 21st century America, this statement is maybe the most offensive, the most controversial claim in all of the Bible. It it may be the most common objection to our faith. See, we live in an increasingly global world. And and you know this, I know this. It's even true in our city of Tracy 90,000 people on the outskirts of the Bay Area. Even here, we see different religions all around us every single day. And as you begin to meet people who are part of those faiths, have you noticed it's not too hard to find people way smarter and way better than I am, but with very different beliefs? So who am I? Who am I to say that my faith is right and their faith is wrong? In addition, we live in a post-9-11 era, and and many people right now are looking at all the religious violence all around the world and and are asking, how can any faith believe it is right and other faiths are wrong without threatening world peace? See, most of the people that you live with and you work around, the answer to today's question, is Jesus really the only way? Well, the answer is obvious. For them, it doesn't take a lot of thought because they believe that any reasonably caring and intelligent person would affirm, of course, there are many ways to God. Of course, all religions teach basically the same thing. Of course, all that matters in the end is that you are sincere. See, this is what our school systems are teaching our children from their earliest days. That's what our corporations are implying, if not openly asserting with their diversity policies. And it's also even what many who profess faith in Jesus Christ have come to accept and to believe. Maybe some of us even here today. Here's what one professing Christian said. To say that other religions are wrong is self-centered and egocentric. I am not even comfortable with saying all religions point to the same God. Whatever trips your trigger is fine with me, if that's your belief system. We are mortal. Who is to say who is right and wrong? If it helps you get through your life and helps you bring meaning to your life, that's fine. See, when we agree with what Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Well, it just sounds narrow-minded to most people. It seems like we're arrogant, that we're intolerant. It seems like we don't really care about all the people in all the world who sincerely seek God in their own way. And worse than that, it sounds like we are claiming that God himself is intolerant, that God himself has set up this system where most people end up getting like tricked into an eternity in hell. Now, the Bible recognizes 
how difficult this question is. 1 Peter 2.8 refers to Jesus as a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And we need to be honest and open about it and face it that the, this exclusive claim of Christ is something that trips people up. It does offend them. And I'll just be honest with you, it kind of offends me too. I don't really like this doctrine. I would like to be able to say, everybody goes to heaven. You know why? Because then everybody would like me. And you know that if you say that, more people are going to like you too. Because you don't exclude everyone. Everyone's happy. We're all good. We're all going to meet together one day in the great hereafter. Today, what I hope to do is help you see that the real question is not, is this idea comfortable, but is it true? Is it really true that all roads lead to heaven? Or, or was Jesus right when Jesus said that he was the only true way? You see, how should we as followers of Christ respond when the world tells us we're narrow or intolerant? When we affirm what Jesus said and, and what Christians have been affirming for 2,000 years now? Before we try to answer some of the questions surrounding this, I want you to listen to the next few verses that come after what we studied last week because I think they give us important insight on where we're heading. Acts 4, 23 through 31, uh, we see in these verses the response of these early Christ followers to the command from the cultural and political elites that they should stop proclaiming salvation in Jesus' name. Here's what they did. On their release... Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Now, what's happening here? If you look closely at Acts chapter 3 and 4, and I told you last week that these two chapters kind of form a unit. They're telling the whole story of this incident that took place. You will see in those two chapters that the root conflict going on here was that these early Christians were saying to their culture that Jesus was the only way, that their way was true and other ways were not. That's what infuriated the Jewish leaders. If you keep reading through the rest of the New Testament, and then if you read on into early church history, you will see the same thing continues to happen. And one of the things that some of us need to become aware of, because I think we don't think that this is the way it was, the Christian faith was born into a world that was religiously pluralistic, probably even more than our world today. The Roman Empire had set up explicitly a religiously pluralistic system. They said to all the peoples they conquered, you can believe whatever you want. We don't care. All you got to do is acknowledge Caesar is Lord. And so there were all these different beliefs and all these different religions and all these different gods floating around. This was the world into which Christianity was born. And I want you to see this, that Christianity began in a time much like ours, a time where people were telling those first Christ followers they needed to keep their faith themselves, that you can't say they were told that your way is the only way. And out of that, think about this. How did these first Christ followers respond in these words we've just read? In verses 23 to 31, what did they do? Well, they reaffirmed their commitment to proclaim the name of Jesus, and they prayed that God would give them more boldness. 
They didn't sit down and shut up. They didn't back up. They didn't stay away. They went back there, and they asked God to give them more boldness. See, today what I want to do is help us think about this question. Is Jesus really the only way to God? And I have a specific purpose in mind. I want us to think about this question so that we can, too, boldly proclaim that Jesus is who he said he was. See, I'm going to help you, try to help you see today a couple of things. Not only is the idea that Jesus is the only way a reasonable claim, I believe it is, but it is also an essential part of true Christianity. In fact, I would say the ability of Christ's followers to answer this question is a real and true indicator of how well we understand Christianity. Now, to help us think our way through this, and we're not going to be able to answer all questions. There's so many things we're going to have to leave untouched. I'm going to ask five big questions, and their purpose is to give us boldness. This is a very practical thing. This is not just about learning some stuff that intellectually. We want to learn these things to help us live in a particular way, to live boldly. Here's the first question. Go ahead and write this down. Where did this claim come from? In the first place, we need to establish that. And the answer, in a word, is Jesus. Jesus is the source of this claim because Jesus clearly claimed deity for himself. I mean, if you just read through the Gospels and you, you pay attention, it's, it's inescapable. Jesus called himself the Son of God, Matthew 26, 63, the giver of eternal life, John 10, 28, the one who forgives sins, Mark 2, 10, the bread of life, John 6, 35, the giver of living water, John 4, 34. He said, I am the true vine, John 15, 1. I am the great I am, John 8, 58. He said, I am the light of the world, the light of the world, John 8, 12, and I am the door of salvation, John 10, 9. Jesus said, I am the Savior. That's John 3, 14 through 16. And he even said, I am one with the Father, John 10, 30. Jesus actually said that if you reject me, you reject the Father, John 5, 23. Jesus actually said that if you reject me, God's wrath will be upon you. That's John 3, 36. Jesus said, and he warned, I'm going to be man's final judge. That's John 5, 26 and 27. Here's one. Maybe you've never really thought about it like this, but this one would never win any kind of award for political correctness. This is John 8, 24. Jesus said, if you do not believe that I am the one I claim to be, you will indeed die in your sins. I want you to put that on your Facebook page and see what happens. <laughs> I mean, that's about as absolute and intolerant and insensitive as you could ever get, right, in 21st century America. But my point is that's what Jesus said. That's what was behind his claim in John 14, 6, and the, the, the claim the apostles made in Acts 4, 12, to be the way, the truth, and the life, to be the only way to the Father. There's no other name, no other name given under heaven. This is the message that the apostles will continue to preach. Uh, Apostle Paul says this in 1 Timothy 2, 5, there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. He's the only one. The apostle John, known as the apostle, of love. 1 John 2.23 says, no one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. The Bible just keeps on again and again making consistent, clear claims about Jesus' identity. Jesus is God's Son. Jesus is God himself. That's why he's the only way. Amen. And we have to grapple with the fact that this claim that we make as followers of Christ comes from him. We didn't make it up. Now, why is this important? And the answer to this is this. That to understand, you, you have to see this to understand Jesus or the Bible's claims about Jesus. See, the identity of Jesus is the core issue of Christianity. The core issue. 
Christianity is not based on a series of teachings. It is based on a person, and this distinguishes us from other faiths. For example, if you take Buddha out of Buddhism, you still have the teachings of Buddhism, and and Buddhism is still intact. You can take Muhammad out of Islam. You still have those teachings, and, and the core of Islam is still intact. But if you take Jesus out of Christianity, you have nothing left. Because everything he said and everything he taught and everything he did took second place to who he was. Think about this. Why did Jesus get crucified? Was it for what he taught? Uh, Jesus was crucified for who he said he was. Do you remember at his trial after they couldn't find anything to charge him with? The high priest asked him, tell us if you are the Christ, the son of the blessed one. And what did Jesus say? Jesus said, I am. And everybody went nuts. The high priest said, what other testimony do we need? Crucify this man. He has blasphemed because Jesus claimed to be the son of man, the Christ, the son of the blessed one. And everybody in that room knew that he was claiming deity for himself. That's why they crucified him. You see, whatever you conclude about this claim, you cannot escape the reality that this claim comes from Jesus. He's the one who said it. And as Christians, we're simply expressing what our Lord and Savior said about himself. We're not making this up because we think we're better. We're not making this up because we think we're smarter. We know we're not if we really understand that we're saved by grace. We're simply confessing and asserting and claiming what Jesus said for himself. And there are more than 100 verses in the New Testament that either explicitly or implicitly claim that Jesus is the only way of salvation. That is why Christians have affirmed this for 2,000 years now. And that is why, by the way, notice this. Anyone who says they're a Christian and they say they don't believe or agree with this, they have to begin by somehow, some way, undermining the truth or the authority of Scripture. This claim comes from Jesus. We need to have that established. Now, there are obviously objections to this claim. And so here's the second question I want us to to think about. Isn't Jesus' claim intolerant? And this is where people start today, most people. Isn't it like intolerant, you know, to say there's only one way, only one truth? And how how can you write off like 80% of the world's population? Now, I want to respond first by saying that religious arrogance and intolerance and contempt for others, it is an enormous problem in our world today. We cannot pretend that that it isn't. But I also want to say that it's also true that some of the most arrogant and judgmental and self-righteous people around are Christians. You say, how do you know? I say, well, because I've been hanging around them all my life. And, (laughs) And also, more importantly, because I am one. And part of the problem around this issue, not the whole problem, but part of it is us. And there are some of us who need to repent. Many of us need to begin practicing the humility that is in the gospel. How we treat other people who differ from us is incredibly important for the sake of the gospel, far more than for the sake of tolerance. Think about it. If if we believe Jesus died for the world, that means he died for that person we look down on. That should change the way we see them and talk about them and treat them. See, but here's the deal. Our culture, and this is a fairly recent thing in history, our culture has made tolerance of any and all views to be the ultimate virtue, that being tolerant today is everything. But here's the question. What does that really mean? See, the truth is tolerance can be a good thing or it can be a bad thing. You say, why? Well, because there are three kinds of tolerance. Let's look at them. The first is legal tolerance. 
And in America, this has to do with our basic First Amendment rights to believe what we want to believe. And let me just say, there's nothing in the Bible anywhere in what Jesus says or anything that would oppose this concept. In fact, we even see a number of things in the Bible that support this concept of legal tolerance. For example, when the Bible notes that God placed Daniel in a place of political influence within a very pagan uh, culture in Babylon, God never told Daniel to try to take away people's freedom to worship, even if they were worshiping false gods and idols. Same thing was true for other politically uh, connected and influential characters in the Bible like Joseph and, and Esther. Jesus himself never suggested that people shouldn't be free to decide for themselves. And by the way, don't miss the truth that this is not true in most other religious contexts, particularly we can think about how it is a crime against the law in many Islamic countries for someone to convert. See, legal tolerance, biblically, we would completely affirm that. And the second kind of tolerance is social tolerance. This simply means accepting someone else as a human being, regardless of what they believe, interacting with them in love. You, you stay relationally open to them as persons. And again, there's nothing in Christianity that would oppose that. In fact, if Jesus stood for anything, it was open, loving acceptance of others as people who mattered to God. We see Jesus again and again reaching out to prostitutes and tax collectors and thieves. He did it so much that his enemies insulted him in their minds. They called him the friend of sinners. But then there's a third kind of tolerance, which is intellectual tolerance. And this is where we have to draw the line. This is the idea, and it, this is really at the root of where our culture is today, the idea that any and every thought and belief is equally valid, equally good, equally right and true. The Bible draws a line here, and here's the thing. I think you do too. I think everybody does, whether they want to admit it or not. I'll just give you a, a simple example. What if someone approached you and said, hey, you know, I have discovered that the best way for you to optimize your laptop's performance is to remove all your antivirus protection and take down your firewall, and then make sure you open every email attachment you get from people you've never heard of, download as much free software as you can from those sites that you don't know, you know, you've never, never seen before. That's the best way. I firmly believe that. Now, you could tolerate that person legally, right? And maybe you could be in a relationship with them, but you don't have to buy into what they believe about the way you would optimize your computer's performance, right? It's just a simple illustration that asserts what we all believe in our hearts, whether we say it or not. Not all points of view are equally valid. See, as Christians, we recognize the importance of legal and social tolerance, but not intellectual tolerance as I've defined it. Let me bring this back to the spiritual arena and just remind you something that's so important you need to understand. When Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life, it wasn't simply a declaration. Do you hear? It was an invitation. It was an invitation. Jesus wasn't refusing anyone the right to believe differently, much less rejecting them socially or culturally. He was just saying, friends, here's the truth. There's only one way to the Father, and it's me. Come. That's at the heart of that statement. Now, you may hear that, and you may think that claim is intolerant. You may think it should be ruled out of bounds. But if that's where you are, I want you to consider a couple of things. The first is this. I don't want you to forget who it is who makes this claim. You can state it like this. Don't separate this claim from the character of Jesus. If you don't like this claim, remember that it is Jesus who almost everyone recognizes as the greatest person who ever lived. He's the one making this claim. Remember that it is Jesus, Jesus who showed unbelievable mercy to all people, Jesus who loved other people like no one else has ever loved before or since. It is Jesus who said this. So put this claim into the context of Jesus' entire life before you rule it out of bounds. And then secondly, I want to encourage you to realize what you are claiming 
when you say that all ideas and all beliefs are equally valid, I want you to realize that is a claim. And I want to ask you to consider, is that claim true? Now, there's a story that started off, I understand, in India. It's been told in many, many different ways that it's often used to defend this idea that all beliefs are equally valid. And this story has been kind of crystallized in a poem by a guy named John Godfrey Sachs. Many people refer to this poem. It's called Six Blind Men and the Elephant. And they, they use it to tell us, you know, you ought to be tolerant of all religious claims. You ought to see them as all having equal uh, claims on truth. And I, I've referred to this story before. And you probably know how it goes. But if you haven't heard it, here's what happens. In this story, this poem, six blind men come upon an elephant, and as they do, they try to describe it. And since they can't see, they must each touch a part of the elephant and draw conclusions. And each one of the men concludes that the elephant is like the part that he is touching. And so one touches the elephant's side and says, you know, the elephant is like a wall. Another touches the elephant's tusk and says, no, it's like a spear. One of them touches the tail and says, no, it's like a rope, and it's kind of humid down here. <laughs> and then another one touches the ear and says, no, no, the elephant is like a fan. Now, John Godfrey Sachs says they all touched one thing, and they all thought the whole elephant was like the part they had a hold of. He writes in his poem, each one disputed loud and long. Although each was partly right, all were in the wrong. Now, notice this. All of them were in the wrong except for one guy. One guy saw the whole truth about the elephant. Who was that guy? Well, it's John Godfrey Sachs, the guy who wrote the poem. He was the one, and this is inherent in telling the story, who is saying, I can see the whole elephant. I know what the whole elephant looks like, so therefore I can tell you that these other people, their point of view is wrong. Do you understand this? It's so important to see this, this idea, this claim that says no religion can know the truth about God. That's also a truth claim. Let me say that again. The claim that says no religion can know the whole truth about God, that is also a truth claim. Science can't prove that. It's actually kind of an article of secular faith today. And I would assert in reality, at root, it is a religious claim. It's a matter of belief. Actually, it's even worse than this. I want you to think about this, going back to the poem. In the poem, really, Jesus and Muhammad and Buddha and other leaders are all the blind men who are mistaken, while the one guy who sees the whole elephant, John Godfrey Sachs. Wouldn't you think that's a little patronizing to say, all religious leaders and all religious faiths, well, they're wrong, but I know the truth the truth that all religions are equally valid. Whether you want to admit this or not, this is what you're doing philosophically when you say to someone, you know, you can't say that Christianity is true and other faiths are not. That's what you're doing. Here's the truth. When you say that, you are doing the very thing you're telling those people they can't do. You are claiming for your point of view the truth. And your point of view that all religions are the same is excluding other people who don't agree with you. Isn't that kind of sort of, I don't know, the definition of intolerance? So I want us to begin to think carefully about this claim of intolerance. And I want us to understand that everyone out in the world, the secular arena, everyone who lives is making truth claims, is making assertions. And as Christians, we don't have to be afraid. We don't have to sit down and shut up because somehow our claims are different than everyone else's. Everyone is claiming truth. And so we should boldly claim the truth that Jesus is who he said that he was. Now, a third question that gets asked a lot is, what about other religions? And a lot of times when this question is asked, people will say something like, well, you know, religions, all of them, they're pretty much basically the same. And when someone says that, here's what I always know, they don't really know much about these religions. They've never really read much about them. Most people will point out some similarities, which are almost always on the surface, 
And, and there's really a flaw in their logic. It's sort of like saying aspirin and arsenic are the same thing because they both come in tablet form. <laughs> See, it's the differences that really are critical here, right? Now, a couple of things to think about uh, under this question. And I just want to put this first one out there and, and make a bold uh, straightforward statement, and it's simply this. All religions are not basically the same. Now, as Christians, we would start from this vantage point, that Christianity stands apart from all other religions in a ba one basic sense, and it's this. All other religions, whatever their teachings, will end up saying somehow that the way to God or the way to whoever, the way to bliss, the way to whatever they call it, that happens through some system of religious works or religious ritual through which you earn favor with whoever it is you're trying to earn favor with. Christianity alone stands in claiming that God himself did everything necessary for us to know him. We don't search for God, the Bible says. He searches for us. And Christianity is the only faith that says that God saves you freely if you put your trust and your faith in a person, a person named Jesus who did for you what you could never do for yourself. And so at that just basic broad level, that's a difference. But I want to kind of come at it from another thing. Go ahead and write this down. All religious claims cannot be equally true. You say, why? Because different religions make mutually exclusive, contradictory claims. Now, we could talk about this for hours, but let me just give you a few examples. Jesus claimed to be the Messiah, right? Well, he either was the Messiah or he wasn't. Does that make sense? If he was, Christianity is right and Judaism is wrong. If he wasn't Messiah, Judaism is right and Christianity is wrong. But under no circumstances can they both be right. Are, are you with me so far? Here's another one. If God exists, and maybe he does, maybe he doesn't. If God exists, then he's either a personal God or he's not personal. If he's personal, then Jews and Muslims and Christians are right and the Hindus are wrong. If he's not personal, then the Hindus are right, and Jews and Muslims and Christians, they're wrong. And if God doesn't exist, just to look at the other side of that, then Buddhists and atheists are right, and everyone else is wrong. But do you see, under no circumstances can everybody be right about this. How about this one? When you die, what happens? Well, different religions say things like you go to heaven, or you go to hell, or you get reincarnated, or you just rot in the grave. But can you do all of those things at the same time? You can't. We, we could just keep going, I, I, but I, I think you see the problem here. And the reality is religions do make mutually exclusive, contradictory claims. The reality is, honestly, it is foolish to say that all religions ultimately teach the same thing. It's flat out wrong. And I'm not at this point making any claim about which religion is true. This is just about this idea that they're basically all the same. Now, when I've talked to people before, most of them will say, well, okay, maybe, but, you know, I don't know. Just to, to say, for you to say that your way is the true way, that's, that's just arrogant, and it's exclusive. You know, you just need to recognize we live in this big world, and there's lots of different faiths or no faith. There's atheist people. There's agnostics. There's secular people. You know, when you say your religion is the true religion, we're never going to have a peaceful pluralistic world. The only way, our only hope for humanity to be truly inclusive, we, we've got to say all religions are equally valid. And again, this is a claim that is not neutral. It comes from a particular point of view. It's a claim that makes philosophical assumptions. And it's also a claim that we need to grapple with because it is kind of the claim of our culture right now. It's the claim, uh, the assumption of the cultural elite in general. And what's underneath this claim, among other things, are a couple of statements you might want to write down. People will often say something like this. Oh, you know, religion can be privately helpful, subjectively helpful. You know, if it's good for you, that's great. So in your private life, how you feel about things, whatever religion you adhere to, whatever that is, that's good that's fine. But objectively, out in public, there, there just can't be one right way to talk about or think about God. And if you say, why not? Well, they'll say, well, you know, the truth is God and spiritual reality, that's just too big 
for anyone to describe in a set of propositions. That's just too big for anyone to put into a certain set of beliefs. Therefore, no one should say, this is the right way to believe. It's okay to believe. I mean, religion is privately, subjectively helpful, but publicly, it's not objectively true. So we know no one religion is the right one. Therefore, all religions are equally helpful and valid. You just have to say that. We all have to say that if we want to, you know, have peace. That's what gets said a lot. But there's two things I want to show you about that. And I just have to warn you, we're going to kind of get deep here. So some of you need to put your floaties on right now and hang with me, all right? I'd like you to write these things down and think about them maybe after we, we, we leave. First thing is this. The claim that all religions are the same is philosophically hypocritical. Now, I want you to just think about this logically, okay? How, how could all religions be equally valid? Assuming, as we've already demonstrated, that they're not the same, they're not true, they're not all saying the same things. The only way they could be equally valid is if two possible premises are true. Here's the first one. It might be true that all religions are equally valid if there's no God and everyone's version of God is just kind of a projection or an imagination. And that's what a lot of people think, right? Or it might be true if there's a God and that God is so impersonal just such an impersonal force that this God just doesn't care what you believe. So to say all religions are fine and equally valid, even though they have contradictory claims, that could only be true if there's no God or if there is a God who doesn't really care what you believe. He's just a, 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 it's just a, a very impersonal force. Now, here's what's going on here. If that is your view, and if you come to Christians and you say to a Christian, you know what? You shouldn't believe you have the one true religion. You should believe that all religions are ways to God. They're all equally valid. They're all helpful. What you are actually saying as you say this is this. You are saying, I have a particular view of God. Because again, to say all religions are equally valid assumes a particular view of God. I have a particular view of God, and you must adopt that view, Christians. You must adopt my view and abandon your view. Oh, wait, wait a minute. What are, what are you doing when you say that? Are you being inclusive? No. What is being said is this. I have a take on God. I have a take on spiritual reality. Everybody should adopt my take, and you should abandon your take. Do you realize what's happening here? When someone says that, they're, they're evangelizing me. They're trying to convert me. If you say that to me, you're saying, I'm right and you're wrong. My take on spiritual reality is right. Your take is wrong. That is exactly what you are telling Christians they shouldn't do. And the only difference really between what you're doing and what we're doing is that you don't want to admit it. So therefore, it's hypocritical. It's philosophically hypocritical. If it's narrow and wrong to say there's one true religion, then it would have to be narrow and wrong to say there's one true way to think about religion, my way. In other words, what you're really doing is being every bit as exclusive. You're just not admitting it. Second thing that I want to say about this claim, and this will shock some of you, the claim that all religions are the same is culturally imperialistic. Now, I don't think it's just logically inconsistent, philosophically hypocritical to say this. I also think it's culturally narrow to say to Christians, you know what, no one should say they have the truth. No one should say they have the one true religion. Now, you say, well, why is that culturally narrow? Well, the whole idea that religion is subjectively true, that it's fine in your private life, but objectively can't talk about it out there in public because we all know morals and religion are subjectively true, never objectively true. That whole line of thinking is based on a philosophical idea called the fact-value distinction. And the fact-value distinction basically is that science gives us facts. And so we can talk about those things in public, there's things that are objectively true. But you know, values and religions and morals are private because nobody can decide what is right. Those things are all subjective. Now, here's the question. Where did that come from? 
And the answer is it came from the Enlightenment. The answer is it came actually from the European Enlightenment of the 18th century. It started in a philosopher, very influential. Maybe you've never heard of Immanuel Kant, but you're thinking if you live in our culture in the 21st century, has been shaped by this guy. It started with him. Here's the other thing. And some of you who come from other parts of the world would recognize this. Most of the world doesn't believe in the fact-value distinction. Most of the world doesn't believe facts are objective, values are subjective. You know who believes it? White people believe it. It came from white people. It, it, it came from the European Enlightenment. It, it came from that source. So, you know, when I hear people say, hey, the world is getting more secular, it's getting more pluralistic, and Christians just need to get on with the program. Do you know what the root truth is? I could give you several books if you want to research it for yourself. The truth is this. Only white people are getting more secular, and they are shrinking in number and percentage to the population of the rest of the world. You see, in most of the world, evangelical and Pentecostal Christianity, Islam, all sorts of orthodox religions, they are all growing by leaps and bounds. It's even happening in many of our own cities in North America and in Europe. And when you say to the most multi-ethnic and multi-racial movement in the history of the human race, which is Pentecostalism, you need to get on the program because this is where history is heading. That doesn't even make sense. When you tell people who have a belief, you, you can't believe you have the truth. You can't believe your religion is right. You know, your morals are primitive and you're on the wrong side of history. And we know history is always right. And if you'll just get on with us, we'll give you an education and we'll make sure you start to realize that all religions are equally valid. Do you see? That is an egregious act of cultural imperialism. We European types are right. The rest of you are wrong. So do you understand that to say no one can say that religion is right. No one can say Jesus is the truth. That in itself is an exclusive and narrow claim that is also philosophically hypocritical and culturally imperialistic. And one of the problems I've seen, honestly, is that most people won't even stay still for the few minutes I just took to explain that everybody's making universal and exclusive truth claims to say, friend, to say that nobody should make a universal claim. That is a universal claim. To say that nobody should decide they have the absolute truth, that is an absolute statement. So therefore, everyone is making exclusive truth claims whether they think they are or not. And here's Southwinds why I'm telling you this. I'm telling you this to encourage you to be bold. Don't feel like you have to hold back because you're doing something no one else is doing. Everyone's doing it. Everyone is making truth claims. Everyone is asserting their point of view. And we need to be faithful, bold proclaimers of the truth that Jesus himself made, the truth that we believe that there is a way and it is a person and that person's name is Jesus. Now, I'm going to get to the last two questions and I'm going to have to do them very quickly because... As usually happens, you guys don't listen quickly enough. And so um, I'm running out of time here, and there's in all of these things so much more uh, that could be and should be said. But I want to briefly address two more questions. What about those who have never heard? If Jesus is the only way, what about other religions, good people who have never, never heard about Jesus? Do they get sent to hell? And I just want to say to you, this is a very complicated topic, and there's really no way to fully address it in our time today, even if you guys were quicker listeners than you are. But I want to say a couple of things, okay? The Bible teaches us that God has put each one of us in the place we live, in the exact time, exact place, you know, in history, and he's done that to give us an opportunity to reach out to him. You can look this up in Acts 17, 26, and 27. And what these verses tell us is if you're in Tibet or Tahiti or Tokyo or even Tracy, it's because God has put you there. And that means you can find him there. The Bible tells us that the way we find him begins with just the creation. Again, you can look up Psalm 19 verses 1 through 4 that tell us the, that the God's creation declares his glory, displays his beauty, that it's there for everyone to see if they will open their eyes, if they will listen with their ears. Why don't people see it? Well, Romans 1, 18 through 20 tells us 
that the reason is that we in our sinfulness suppress the truth of God. We deny the truth that God has made evident to us. And this is what sin is. All people everywhere, we suppress the truth. We do that in our sin. Now, like I said, this is a very complex issue. There's a whole lot more to talk about. I just want to say this to us. We may never understand how God reaches people in all corners of the globe in every age. But I think what we have to do is this. It is what I have chosen to do as I've grappled with this. I've chosen to trust that God is good enough and God is wise enough and God is powerful enough to take care of all people. I may not know how he does it. I may not understand his ways, but should that really surprise anyone that you don't understand an infinite God, how he thinks? See, ultimately, it comes to a place where we put our trust in God to do what is right. That also speaks to this last question. What about good, moral, sincere people? And I'm sure somebody right now is thinking like, you know, Pastor Mike, what what are you saying? This is someone like Gandhi, you know, really good, really noble. Is he in hell just because he didn't acknowledge Jesus as the way to God? I mean, and that's a question. I'll just up the stakes because this goes far beyond the Gandhis of our world. For some of us, this is very personal, and it's personal for me. A few years ago, a young woman who was a spiritual seeker was attending a church in another state. She'd been going over a year, and she approached the pastor to talk, and she just shared how far she'd come, and she said, I believe in the Bible. I've trusted in Jesus as God's son. But she said, because I've come from a deeply Jewish heritage, I'm struggling with something. She said, I just can't believe my Jewish parents are in hell. I just can't believe these two wonderful people are not with God in heaven. So what do you say? Well, what this pastor said is something I've had to say on many occasions. And it's the only thing sometimes I know to say, but in the end, it is where we all must end and often stand in this broken world. He just said, we must trust in the character of God. You see, our entire relationship with God depends on our faith in his character. Is he a good God? Is he always just and fair? I I choose to trust and say yes. I believe that God will treat every person with complete and total love, with complete and total justice. I believe this applies to all people, including those who've never heard the good news of Jesus, to those who were never able to comprehend that news, to those who may have seemed to reject that news, that one-year-old child who died, the mentally challenged person, isolated inhabitants deep in the Amazon jungle or out on on an isolated island, you know, in the middle of the ocean centuries and centuries ago. I don't know. And I trust in the character of God. You can look up this statement in Genesis 18, 25, where Abraham affirms that the judge of the earth will do right. And I think there are some things we may not understand and may not know. However, in saying this, you need to know I am not saying that there are people out there who are good enough to be okay with God. When we face the limits of our understanding, we we cannot lose sight of the reality of our sin and of the need of all people for Christ's saving grace. The Bible actually teaches, you can look it up, Romans 3, 10 through 12, that no one is truly good. There's no one righteous, not even one. And the truth is that no one can come to God on their own. Everyone has a broken relationship with God on their own. See, God made us all to live in relationship with him. And we are the ones who chose to broke, break off that relationship through our sin and through our, our, our rebellion. That's why God sent Jesus. He sent Jesus to deal with our sin. You see, the reason Jesus is the only way is Jesus is the only one who has dealt with our true ultimate problem. Our, our problem is sin. We've rebelled against a holy, righteous God. We've cut ourselves off from the giver of life. That is why we die. Jesus is the only one who addresses this problem. See, the only way to repair the broken relationship with God is to become reconciled with God himself. And God has said 
This only happens through what my son Jesus has done on the cross. I understand how, how people would not get that this isn't meant to be intolerant, that this isn't meant to be arrogant. I'm not saying any of these things, wanting to put down what is good and what is true in other religions. This is ultimately about God reaching out to you, and Jesus is the way that God has done this. Let me illustrate it with this, and then I'll close. Some of you know this reality. I thankfully don't, but I have been told that an inflamed, infected appendix is one of the most excruciating pains we can suffer. And a sensible response to that pain is you go to the hospital, you have an appendectomy, you take the infected appendix out before it ruptures and maybe kills you. But what if you said, well, that's not my belief. Hey, you know, whenever my gut gets out of control, I like to go on a diet and get more exercise. That's my preferred way. So, you know, doctor, what if I just, what if I just eat better for a few days? What if I run an hour each day? Your doctor would say, don't be ridiculous, right? What if, what if you said, well, I'm not against drugs, Maybe there are prescriptions that I could take instead of having an operation. What about that stuff? I see the commercials on it, you know, beta prostate. That's kind of like down there in that same region, isn't it? Maybe I could take some of that and see if it takes care of it. And the doctor, again, says, you know, I don't mean to be narrow, but your appendix is about to burst and about to kill you. There is only one way, and that way actually is bloody. We have to cut you open. We have to take that thing out. Do you want it? See, this is exactly what Jesus says about our ultimate deep problem. There's just one way to deal with it. And the beautiful thing is, actually, you don't have to get cut because Jesus has already been cut for you. And again, that's why we say Jesus is the only way. Not to be arrogant, not to be exclusive. We say it because it really is the only way. I like the way Andy Stanley puts it in starting point. He says, here's the great thing about Christianity. Despite its exclusive claims, he says, the truth is everyone is welcome. Anyone can come. And everyone comes in the same way through Christ. And everyone can meet the requirement because it is simple enough for every person to meet. All you need to do is believe all you need to do is trust. You turn from your sin, you turn in trust to Jesus Christ, and you accept what he has done on your behalf. Jesus is the way. He is the truth and the life. He states that as an invitation. If you haven't received him, the door is open to you, and you can walk through it today. Would you bow your heads as we pray? Father God, um, as we talk about these enormous matters, we realize that there's so much to think about and so much we don't understand. Lord, help us to stand and trust in what you have clearly stated, that your son Jesus addresses the real problem that all people have, that we have sinned and our relationship with you is broken. Lord, remind us that what we know is not because we were smarter or we were better, that your salvation only comes by grace. We just give you thanks for that grace and humility, Father. Lord, I pray that you would open eyes and open ears of all who hear what we've talked about as we share with them, and Lord, help them to see you, to see your truth, your way. We ask these things now in the name of your Son, who is the way, the truth, and the life, the name of Jesus, our God, and all his people say.